Morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I hope you enjoyed the first hour on this, the 75th anniversary of victory over Hitler, victory in Europe, VE Day. Yes, indeed, there's big news uh, and documents filed Thursday. Again, reading from the Washington Post like I did last hour, the Justice Department said, quote, after a considered review of all the facts and circumstances of this case, including newly discovered and disclosed information, the government has concluded that General Flynn's interview was untethered to and unjustified by the FBI's counterintelligence investigation. That is a bombshell. We don't know all about it yet. We will by Monday. I will fill you in all about it on Monday. But in the meantime, let's continue with our conversation about this most important of anniversaries. Victory over the most evil man of the last century, Adolf Hitler. It occurred 75 years ago today, Victory in Europe Day. And I'm talking with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College on this, the anniversary of VE Day. Stay tuned to it all today. And now I want to talk, Dr. Arn, in this hour about how you lead in a war by rhetoric, about how Churchill used words as his weapons. And we meet on a great battlefield of the current crisis, not as great as the hospitals and the research lab, but the media is a great battlefield of the current crisis. And I think we really need some Churchillian approaches to the media at this point, because it's not doing its job. Yeah. Well, he, Churchill fought the media all his life. And, uh, uh, and, you know, he. Uh, one thing that I worry about is uh, the media is much more uniformly between us and the political debate than it used to be. Uh, used to be there was a brief glorious moment where they would just play a presidential speech and then go back to programming. But now it's uh, the presidential speech is uh, is preceded and followed and often chopped up in the middle by commentary, by experts. And so to, to, to get, you know, we're not encouraged to look at it ourselves. And that's a danger, in my opinion. Well, let me, let me play for you. I think we have Handy, the Attorney General of the United States, William Barr, in a conversation I had with him two weeks ago, uh, commented on this very problem, and it will set up how Churchill got around it or got to people during the war. Uh, can we play that Barr quote? Absolutely. I think it has, you know, very pernicious impact on the republic to have a, a media that is so concentrated and monolithic and uh, in its views and also so, uh, you know, uh, partisan, really. Um, you know, de Tocqueville said that he thought a press would essentially prevent, help prevent America from becoming a despotism, but that's only if it remains, uh, you know, a highly diverse Set of voices, and if it ever combines into you know one viewpoint, then you know then it will actually become counterproductive for the republic. So I'm very disturbed by the monolithic nature of our press. That was not the case during World War II, Doctor Ron. You made a point last week that there was criticism of the government. Censorship existed to prevent the Germans from learning things uh, that would advantage them over the Allies, but there was never any attempt to inhibit criticism of Churchill, and he got a hailstorm of it frequently because he made a lot of mistakes. But, but what yeah. Barr's talking about is something completely different. Yeah, and, and you know, back in those days, uh, you know, did you know Charles Dickens was a Hansard writer? Yes. Say he would sit up in the, in the gallery and write down everything everybody said, which is published in their official reports of the debates, the Hansard. And everybody read those, and they used to 
they used to reprint large segments of the, and sometimes the whole, of speeches by important people, pro and con, in several different newspapers every day. And when you think about what Churchill had to do, every week, when he was not out of town, every week, Churchill had to go and answer questions from a hostile opposition. And those, were, those answers were printed in the papers. And, and his, uh, his answers are, of course, witty and hilarious, and they're baiting him and going after him, and then there are long speeches attacking him. And that, you know, that was not interrupted. That's what happened. And um, he, 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 they had several secret sessions, uh, and he, he said, they're all published now. And uh, in several of them, he may, in the first one, in several others, he makes the point that we're not doing this. We don't like to do this, and this is not a good idea, and we're not going to do it very much. But once in a while, we need to have a session where we can say things out loud in Parliament that the Germans can't read. You, you know, Dr. Arn, you've just reminded me that the question time tradition that the British have is once a week. President Trump is doing the American equivalent of question time, and he's doing it with the opposition because the media is Joe Biden's advance team. He's doing it daily. Is that a mistake on his part? Because the work of the parliament was not all question time. That was a one day of the week. Well, uh, you know, it's, it, that's, uh, I, I think of that the same way as I think about the tweets. He needs a way to communicate where he can get said what he wants said. And uh, he's, you know, a master at that. And, you know, he has done, by and large, very well in these press conferences. And they've, you know, some of the networks don't cover them as much as they used to because his popularity was rising. And remember about those polls. It's a happy fact that polls change a lot in the last six weeks before an election. Oh, yes. And that's because people are thinking about it, right? And that's because they, the, the patterns of American politics revolve around the constitutional arrangements. And the only thing we can do between elections, we people, is talk. And so when it gets time for us to do the, the one thing that we can do apart from talk, which is vote, then there's a lot more attention paid. And when we focus, uh, you flay me if I do not remind people that Vice President Biden was against the stopping of inbound traffic from China in January. Just flay me. It is the, it is the equivalent of Churchill in the 30s. Yeah. Uh, and Baldwin saying, don't worry about the air war. We can't, didn't Baldwin say we can't possibly win an air war? Didn't he say something like that? He said the bomber will always get through, uh, which was true. And then he said it would be the end of civilization, which it wasn't. And, and, and uh, that, that is to me why uh, well, the great difference between them. Let's talk about rhetoric, Dr. Arn, because rhetoric matters a lot. President Trump rhetoric is interesting. Well, first of all, what is it? Well... Uh, from the classics, from Aristotle's rhetoric, it is uh, the art of persuasion in the first definition he gives of it, and the fully developed definition toward the end of the book that he gives is, it is a truth-disclosing, active condition in public address. So the great rhetoric seeks the truth as it can be found and explained in talking in a public forum. And, and uh, that's, uh, uh, there are some tricky things about it, like, 
you know, if you if you read Aristotle's ethics or still more the metaphysics, he's trying to prove things. And that's hard and dialectical and a winding course. Rhetoric starts with what we all agree about, and there are in America big things we still all agree about, and then reasons from them to the conclusion what to do today. Now, the greatest rhetorician of my lifetime was Reagan. He was a great rhetorician. Uh, people thought President Obama was, but in fact, he was a great absorber of time. He, he didn't really say much. President Bush was not gifted in this area, though he said the same thing again and again in order to make it heard. How do you rate Trump, especially in the middle of a crisis when it comes to rhetoric and, and with Churchill in the background looming as the standard? Well, Trump is... Um you know, first of all, many of Trump's, you know, written out and delivered speeches are really good. Uh, and, you know, the speechwriters are writing for him things he wants to say. I know a couple of them. And, uh, and those, are, those develop a whole account of America. And they're worth reading. Nobody reads them, but they should be read. Uh, the rallies are tour de force, right? And they... What Trump understands is politics runs on enthusiasm. And, and, and there's one thing that's very good about his rhetoric, and it's, I think this is true about Churchill's rhetoric, although they're very different kinds of things. Uh, on the one hand, he wants to generate enthusiasm, but on the other hand, he wants to point back to the liberal society where we get to live the way we want. If you, just, if you compare Churchill's speeches and Hitler's, speeches. What Hitler is doing in his speeches is sending people marching in a disciplined army. He, he liked to uh, use hard words and say hit and slap his fist against his palm. Uh, and, uh, and everything is imperative and emphatic. Churchill's rhetoric is explanatory. And, and then there are these sublime passages that draw the conclusion. When we come back, we're also going to talk about the fact that uh, Churchill was a bullion, full of joy, even as he was full of sorrow. I'll be right back, America. Dr. Larry Arn, it's the Hillsdale Dialogue on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Portions of The Hugh Hewitt Show are brought to you in part by PatternsofEvidence.com. on the Salem Radio Network. Returns for break in 4 minutes and 15 seconds. show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in three minutes and 45 seconds. The 
Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in 3 minutes and 15 seconds. Salem Radio Network returns for break in two minutes and 45 seconds. show on the Salem Radio Network returns for break in two minutes and 15 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in one minute and 45 seconds. Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in one minute and 15 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in 45 seconds. Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in 15 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show returns from break in five seconds. Welcome back, America. It's you here at the Hilltale Dialogue is underway on this May 1st and repeated on May 8th, Victory in Europe Day, with Dr. Larry Arn as we talk about Winston Churchill, the victory in Europe 75 years ago, how it was achieved, and how it might inform how we respond to the present crisis that America finds itself in. And we are in a crisis. There is no denying that we are in a, a terrible 
economic calamity and a medical calamity, and we have to think very seriously about how we talk. You know, Dr. Arnn, in reading about Churchill in, in the introduction to all the collections of the documents that you have prepared, um, volume 17 through 22, I've been reading the prefaces, I'm overwhelmed by the amount of talking that went on during the war, but Churchill was often filled with sorrow and tears, but often ebullient mm. and sometimes angry and scowling, but usually happy and dancing about. I, I mean, he was an emotional fellow. I yeah. think President Trump is an emotional fellow. Oh, yeah. He, uh, um, what, I th- what I think, you know, about Trump, they say the White House is in chaos. And, you know, I got some students working there, so I'd go in there and I'd say, can you take me around and show me the chaos? Uh, <laughs> Trump, Trump is very decisive. Well, talk about Churchill because he's the greatest. Uh, what what it was like, you know, we, we you and I have been talking about it offline, but uh, in this Larson book, there's a really great explanation of a story that's well known. This young man, Jock Colville, who worked for Neville Chamberlain, uh, was one of his parliament, one of his four parliamentary private secretaries. That uh, means uh, the guys who's they were members, but they stood around and did the work, ran around, did the work. Well, Colville kept a diary, and he wasn't supposed to. It's a crime. And he later published the diary, and thank God for it. Thank God he didn't, he didn't get out early until well after the war. But thank God he kept it because he was a Chamberlain guy, and he just thought, this is going to be chaos. I don't see how we can keep on with this man in this place. Churchill. Yeah. Churchill, a and, wild man, right? A, yeah, a, a, just, you know, and on the second day, he records, I have seen civil servants running down the hall. <laughs> and, that, and, you know, Churchill would just, it, it, uh, uh, another, Allen Brook, you know, and Churchill would, could be frustrating to people. Allen Brook is a senior military man in Great Britain. That's right. And uh, Churchill could be, you could be frustrated with Churchill because he would interrupt your work and you had to work on what he said, right? And so he describes it in his diaries uh, as it's like there was this searchlight moving all across the government and, and you never knew when it would light on you. And when it lit on you, everything would change. And there were others, there was Clementine searchlight and Beaverbrook searchlight and, and, Everybody had a searchlight because they knew the big searchlight was out there. And it was terrifying, but energizing. Yeah, and he wrote, uh, you know, he had a sticker made, uh, Action This Day. <laughs> and, you know, he stamped things with that. And you get this thing from the prime minister, and it said, Action This Day, right? And uh, he loved to say, he had an expression, he would say, Find a way to make this work. Let the objections argue for themselves. And, uh, and, you know, he would try things, and, some, of course, many of the things he tried were foolish. Oh, Professor and, Linderman's bomb that he wanted, his umbrella bomb, I don't know how you, a parachute bomb. It yeah. never worked, right? They get a bunch of them up in the sky and drop them on the planes from above. <laughs> that was yeah. his idea. And, you know, they were really, he was a great physicist. He was an Oxford physicist and, uh, and you know, had a, a big impact and a happy impact on things. But he had some harebrained schemes. Oh, yeah. And I, it was these antic energies, though, that were unleashed by Churchill, which I think can inform our moment. Because I'm very optimistic about beating the virus because of all of the, all of the free world sciences turned on it. 
all of it, like a laser beam. It's like the space program condensed into one year. So I'm optimistic, but but it does need energy to keep it going. That searchlight needs to beam. Yeah, you know, call you know, um, Churchill would, you know, he 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 did he he had a rule. Uh, no order from me is an order unless it's written down. Oh, of course, that's a great blessing because we can now look right that they're preserved, and so you get one of these things and you got to respond to it and right away. A record, see. Right away. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Orr and all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Go and especially watch last week's forum on the coronavirus and then all of these three hours on the 75th anniversary of victory in Europe. You can't find anything more timely than what happened 75 years ago. Stay tuned. Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in five minutes and 15 seconds. show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in four minutes and 45 seconds. Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns for break in four minutes and 15 seconds. show on the Salem Radio Network returns for break in three minutes and 45 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in three minutes and 15 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show 
on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in two minutes and 45 seconds. show on the Salem Radio Network returns for break in two minutes and 15 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network. Returns from break in one minute and 45 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in one minute and 15 seconds. show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in 45 seconds. The Salem Radio Network returns for break in 15 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show returns from break in five seconds. Welcome back, America. Two here at the Hilltale Dialogue is underway. And I've got to tell you, uh, Dr. Arn, I am amazed by the prefaces you put together about the war uh, in these volumes of documents about the war, which Hillsdale College is in charge of now. I did not know till I read the prefaces to prepare for this. My woge of prefaces, a word invented by Martin Gilbert, the official biographer, that there had been a famine in Bengal. And the reason I bring that up is because... Th- Nobody has any idea of what's coming at Trump and his task force every day. Nobody has any idea. Uh, and I didn't have any idea that, that Churchill had to deal with a famine in Bengal. It's been 75 years. I've read lots of books about World War II, and I didn't know about this. So capacity to nimbly change from subject to subject seemed to me to be absolutely necessary to running a crisis. Well, yeah, what happened? Churchill's been accused of deliberately starving to death millions of of the Indian people. Uh, what actually happened was, actually, it starts with something pretty simple. 
most of the grain that made rice and stuff, uh, all the grains that got to India came from uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, Vietnam is a great rice place. Thailand is a great yes. rice place. Yes. And uh, and the Japanese took it, <laughs> and so now it's not coming. And then there were bad crops twice in a row, and they ran out of food. And uh, there were huge efforts to get them food, and they did get them a lot of food and not enough. And why didn't they get them more? Well, it did take some time to figure out how bad things were. And then they started working on it, and there are several cabinet discussions of it. And we've got to help them all we can. But here's the problem. You know, the world gets alerted to this, and everybody's upset. And Mackenzie King, the prime minister of, of uh, Canada in the war, and a great man, he, he writes to Churchill and says, you know, we got huge amounts of grain. Uh, they can have it all. Uh, how do we get it there? <laughs> and, and, you know, they were busy assembling an army across the Atlantic and around the c- circumference of Eurasia to fight the biggest war in history. And the shipping was all tied up. Yep. And so it was hard to get, and Australia had a lot of grain, hard to get it from Australia. So the point is, that's what happened. And, and you know, I mean, I'll add another thing that's like that. Uh, it was discovered in 1944 that there, there was a factory in Poland fed by a railway that was a factory, it was a slaughterhouse for Jews. And that was really hard to believe. A couple of guys escaped. And they in March, I think, and then uh, it was not until June that a third guy escaped that people started to believe the stories uh, down in Israel is where they ended up. Well, what are you going to do about it, right? Well, uh, on the list of things that Heim Weissman gave Winston Churchill was bomb Auschwitz. And by accident, they did do that one time. And, and I met a woman whose mother was saved by that bomb falling because she was in the gas chamber and the bomb fell and the guards ran away and she got out and then wasn't selected again. So it probably would have worked, wow. right? But here's the point. When you put it together, right, so they talk about this. What are we going to do, right? And uh, Weizmann's list that he gave Churchill, and Weizmann and Churchill, Weizmann's one of the founders of modern Israel, and Weizmann and Churchill were friends for a long time. Uh, it started out, parachute some people and see if this is true. Hard to believe, right? Well, there's only one way they could bomb uh, up there, and that was they took southern Italy, and there was a big airfield in Foggia, and the bombers could take off and bomb in Poland, you know, which was close to the front where the Soviet Union was coming uh, against Germany, and then they would have to land in the Soviet Union and refuel and, and then fly back to Foggia. Well, that meant that the Soviet Union controlled the bombing routes, right? What are you going to bomb? And they wanted to bomb the German army. And that's not a totally illegitimate thing, of course. And so they didn't bomb Auschwitz. And uh, Martin Gilbert wrote a book about that, and it's very good. And it shows the many reasons why that didn't happen. And one of them was there were some people in the British government who didn't care as much about Jews as they ought to have. As, as there was in the United States State Department. But yeah. you remind me as well by bringing up Russia in one of your prefaces, again, this is what a leader faces when they face a crisis. Far away, halfway around the world, what, a million, nine hundred thousand people are casualties in the Battle of Stalingrad? I yeah. mean, it's it, it's so large, as it stuns when you realize 
how epic this this confrontation and then the largest battle of tanks ever and it's all going on half the globe away and no one knows about it except of course churchill or in this case trump understands what's happening in ecuador or or gets a report of how the virus is ravaging uh, uh thailand or something we don't know about this they've got the media is focused on tiny little angels on the head of pins instead of the vast things that are going on in the world yeah and it's um you know think of the so and it's not just understanding churchill had to make decisions and so that 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 thing that you talked about in the war uh britain went into the war on the occasion of the german invasion of poland churchill thought they ought to have done it earlier in czechoslovakia um and so saving Poland, that was the proximate cause of the whole thing. And now, the, you know, the Germans had taken Poland, except in the uh, Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, where the Soviet Union and the Germans got together, they, they carved up Poland between them. So are you going to get a free Poland after this? Well, the Red Army is coming. And the Red Army is twice as big as the British and American armies, and twice as big as the German army in the East. And... So it's not like they're going to take Poland from the Soviet Union. Right. That, that was, Churchill called that idea lunacy one time in a meeting with the Polish exile ministers in London. And he said to them, there's just one hope, and that is you've got to make a favorable territorial arrangement with the Soviet Union now, and we will make up what ground you lose in the East by taking some from the Germans in the West, and we'll get the United States to be a party to the agreement and if we can get that done now, then then there'll be some hope, he says, because the United States is the only force that's going to be able to stand up to him, if any can. And he begs them to do that, begs them to do that. They, they in the end, didn't do that until it was too late. But never mind, it didn't make any difference, because at both Yalta and Potsdam, uh, Stalin said the Soviet Union needs a strong, independent Poland to provide a buffer. And, you know, within 10 days of the signing of the Potsdam agreements, he was arresting all the opposition in Poland. Yeah. So he's a communist. He's a communist. People have to remember. The com- yeah. Churchill always had his number, but he had hope for using FDR to, to blunt him. Uh, Dr. In, in the remainder of this segment and the next, we've got to talk about defeat early on. Four words. Norway, Dunkirk, Greece, Singapore. And there could be a lot more. In, the, in this war, the, the victory of which we'll celebrate next week, the 75th anniversary of it, there were horrendous defeats. And how did Churchill react to those? Well, they were terrible, of course. Um, it's a personal thing with me. My wife's father was evacuated at Dunkirk on the last day, and then he was sent to Singapore and he was captured and was a POW and a camp commander. Oh, for that's three and a half twice years unlucky. Wow. Um, you know, there's really cool stuff about him in the Imperial War Museum. And I put it there. Um, anyway, he's, uh, these things, you know, and the, the Dunkirk thing was a huge thing because they expected to get 30,000 off and they got north of 300,000, counting 100,000 French, if I remember the numbers right. And that was like a deliverance, right? The British Army was not that big, um, but they got most of it back. And they didn't expect to. And, the, and, and what intervened was they, the British government, Churchill and some of the Navy people, they just encouraged everybody with a boat to go get some people. Yep. 
And that was amazingly good. If you want to see this, there's some really good movies about that. The movie, the modern, recent movie, Dunkirk, I don't think is all that good. But there are some really good ones, including the award-winning Mrs. Miniver was partly about that. And, and, and they asked, right? They asked the people to do something. And they yeah. responded not merely with sacrifice, but with cur. I mean, heroism. Yeah, well, a lot of casualty, you know, on those boats. And those are just fishermen, right? And, uh, and pleasure craft. And, and, you know, they're sailing people, the British. And they, they're close to the sea. Everybody lives reasonably close to the sea. So they, they went and got them. And, you know, in the D-Day arrangements, Churchill lobbied hard for using the same method to get troops over there again. And they didn't do it in the end because no, he was he was he was overruled. I mean, you could walk the channel, right? The 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 number of Allied boats crossing, you could walk across it. Yeah, there were many thousands, and uh, and that you know that. So and again, that's a theme, right? If you know the Germans or the Chinese or the Soviets have an advantage, they can tell people what to do, and they have an apparatus of enforcement. And the peoples in those countries are all patriotic people, too. So they also cooperate. They cooperate in a regimented way. Well, I, our advantage is opposite that, right? And that is we can get everybody to help. And then you can deal with the exceptions. You can deal with the lawbreakers. And the reason you can deal with them is because there won't be very many. There won't be. When we come back from break, we're going to talk about how you rally people to that cause. Don't go anywhere. Come right back for more of Dr. Arnon Churchill as we uh, as we spend our three Fridays talking about winning wars and we're engaged in this war with the virus. It's great to talk about Churchill. Thank you, Dr. Arnon. Don't go anywhere. I want to take a couple of minutes to tell people about Angel Tree. Um, even as we celebrate the deeds done by our fathers and our grandfathers 75 years ago today in defeating Hitler, we look around the United States and we see a lot of need, and this audience is a generous audience, and over the years they have always done one thing, which is support the children who are innocent of men and women who were in prison, who aren't, obviously, and they're doing their time, and they're doing it for a lot of years often, and sometimes kids have both mom and dad in jail. Usually it's just one parent, but they all need a little extra support, especially in the long, hot summer, especially in this, the summer of coronavirus. Now, we don't know whether they're going to go to camp or not. A few of them will get to, but all of them need attention. So we've got a good system going here. We've got, we're raising $200 per kid uh, to either send them to camp if possible or to provide them with a box of blessings, $150 worth of great food coupons for nutritious, good stuff, and sports equipment. So even if they can't get out to Lake in the middle of nowhere, they're going to be able to play soccer, hoops, whatever it is in their neighborhood with their friends, get out of doors and stay out of trouble doing the sorts of things that your kids are going to be doing. And we hope you will help us do. The Angel Tree offering has always generated hundreds of people stepping forward with $200 to say, I will sponsor the child of a prisoner. We'll try and get him to camp. That's our preferred choices to get them to camp where that is not possible. We're going to get them that box of blessings. Will you not help us with $200, please? Uh, hundreds of you have already stepped up. Please make it more this weekend. Please do it this morning. The Angel Tree banner is over at HughHewitt.com. I appreciate it very much. Coming back with more on VE Day in Churchill with Larry Arn, but also got to remind you about ReliefFactor.com 1995. Get you started, I said, in the first hour. 
Now is the time. This is the week when you want to be part of, uh, you know, a resolve, a resolve just as great as your father's or your grandfather's to do right by yourself and your country. Get into shape, stay into shape, do so with the assistance of relieffactor.com. I took it in the first hour. I urge you to continue to take it every single day. 1995 is the first is the first thing you've got to do is get that starter pack for three weeks. And let me remind you on a day that we honor the men and women who won World War II in Europe, that we also want to honor those who are serving today with honorboundcoffee.com. If you subscribe to Honor Bound Coffee, every single sip of coffee you take, as I'm taking on right now, going forward in the future, will go to support. All of the profits from Honor Bound Coffee go to support the men and women who are fighting the fight on your behalf, doing what their forefathers did 75 years ago today, honorboundcoffee.com. 100% of the profits go to military families through established organizations of the highest reputation. So get both relieffactor.com and honorbound coffee. Stop by the Angel Tree banner and come right back for more. Dr. Larry Arn on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in three minutes and 15 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in two minutes and 45 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in two minutes and 15 seconds. show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in one minute and 45 seconds. show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in one minute and 15 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network 
returns from break in 45 seconds. Hugh Hewitt Show on the Salem Radio Network returns from break in 15 seconds. The Hugh Hewitt Show returns from break in five seconds. America, it's Hugh Hewitt, wrapping up today's Hillsdale Dialogue. Next week, we conclude our three-part series, uh, Approaching the Victory in Europe, 75th Celebration, in the middle of a crisis that is sweeping the world of the sort that we haven't seen in 100 years, in the sort of a crisis that Churchill presided over. So, Dr. Ron, to conclude this week, what ought our public officials be saying and doing to rally people if they use as their model the British and the Americans and the Canadians and the, and the Empire and the Free French, uh, how did they rally people in the crisis of 75 years ago? Well, they, you know, they, first of all, they encouraged people to do their jobs and, uh, you know, and do them hard. And, uh, and, and they encouraged people to save and, and economize everything, and they did. And they rationed those things. But remember, almost all of the compliance was voluntary. And it had to be, and it, you know, it has to be, by the way, uh, because uh, if you take half your population and make it guard the other half, you cut your population in half or more than in half. Yeah. So it was that. And then, you know, you say about today, I would, uh, you know, I, I have particular thoughts about this because I think it's my business to have college. And having college is a very joyful thing. And so I started thinking the minute this hit, how do we have college? And I'm still thinking about that. So I'm uh, buying equipment, you know, masks and, and sanitizers, and there's a machine you can buy, I mentioned before. And we bought a bunch of them, and they should come in August, right? You can't get the stuff, by the way. That's a failure of the public health system. Because then, you know, I said to a bunch of kids, it was very moving, because the ones who were here for spring break were about 150, and seven of them were on a mission trip. That is to say, they were doing mission work among the poor in Hillsdale County. And they're really great kids. And I got them in a room, and I said, let's talk about whether we can bring the kids back or not. And I told them what I know about it. I told them that a lot of them might get sick, and some of them might die. And I said, look, and if we bring them back, then... You know, you may be carrying bedpans or something, and you may get sick yourself. And you know what their response was? I mean, there were 50 in the room by count uh, of the 70 who were on the mission trip. Three of them wanted to go home. And I said, good, go. You know, if we, and, and we call people back in September, if, in August, if it's questionable, we're going to let the ones study at home who want to. Uh, but, you know, 47 of the 50 said, we have to come back. That's what we do here. That'll be and great. So we'll it, be the greatest the, Hillsdale College students in history if we get to do that. Uh, well, they can't beat the fact that the whole college emptied out when the Civil War began. But 
they they can cut they can tie them perhaps uh but you will have to ask them to cooperate voluntarily in the care of each other yeah and they and you know they will right like uh, i have many letters from students they are all inspiring and the from the students in that group several of them have written me to forgive me for not bringing the students back Well, they shouldn't be so quick. You know, I, let me advise them. So forward those to me and let me engage with them a little bit. Um, but but it will be a different place. It'll be a special place. But you'll have to lead in a crisis. And that you can't coerce. I mean, when I read this Churchill book, the one that we talked about, The Splendid and the Vile, it's just little puffs of Churchill. and Or your prefaces, which are meaty, sturdy, but econom- uh, so so quickly and compacted. Big doses, fire hydrants of, of Churchill. I realize you can't do anything except make decisions and inspire people to try and do the right thing. You, 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 I mean, you let Beaverbrook loose on the air industry. You turn uh, the prof loose. You, you seduce Averill Harriman. You, you completely charm Harry Hopkins. You do whatever you have to do, but you can't make anyone do anything. And always, that's right, always on the knowledge that you're part of it, although maybe the single most important part, if you're talking about one thing, your part of it is a small part. It's, you know, I mean, a a bunch of my faculty members, a few, are sort of, they don't like technology and they don't want to teach that way and they're afraid of it, right? They've all learned. And I only half know how they learned. And I just hear these reports and they're just inspiring. There's a particular woman, I won't call her name, but she's very nervous about this, and she's a great and highly experienced teacher. And uh, I don't know how I ever teach what I teach on the Internet. And, and I said, well, you'll figure it out. And, you know, she did. And, and uh, so she did that, right? I didn't do it. And, uh, and that's what you have to remember. The kid, you know, mostly what I say to the students is, we, we, we have to overcome this, right? And that means that they're you off on your own isolated, you've got to keep up the intensity of work that you would keep up here because you can't learn without that. And then they've all got something to do, and they just you just watch the smiles break out on their faces when you say things like that to them. And they and, dive in. We yeah. will dive in next week on the 75th anniversary or next hour on the 75th anniversary because we're doing this twice, a victory in Europe. About even as victory in Europe was being forged, Churchill was looking ahead. And this country has to look ahead far beyond the crisis to what happens next. We'll do that next week. Dr. Larry Arn, thank you. All things Hillsdale, collected at hillsdale.edu. Go there, go to hillsdale.edu, support the college, and watch what they do. They'll be an example to us all. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Generalissimo. We'll be back next week with the next Hugh Hewitt Show.